All right. Good morning, friends. I'm excited for a couple of reasons this morning. Um, first and foremost, just to worship together again. Um, I've been having to encourage myself with the fact that as much as I dislike technology in place of being together in person, that I am truly grateful for the ability that we have to designate a time to spend time worshiping Jesus, getting into God's word together, and knowing that we are uniting in heart and in spirit. So I'm excited for that. I'm grateful for it. Thanks for worshiping with us today. today. But I'm excited for a second reason, because this is our last Sunday doing this. Now, this is all God willing and, and open to change as we continue to pay attention to what's happening um, with the coronavirus. But our plan is that next Sunday, June 21st, we will begin meeting again in person at North Shore Elementary School. So we want to invite you guys out for that. Um, be watching midweek. We're going to send out an informational video that will equip you guys with what you can expect. I can tell you we are going to take some pretty um, significant precautions to make sure things are safe since we're going to be gathered indoors. And so please be watching for those and please be willing to participate in that. Um, additionally, if you are not planning on coming in person, we will continue to live stream. But instead of me filming this at my house, we'll be filming um, from the school. And so very excited, looking forward to worshiping with you all. Wherever you're at in this, we love you. We're praying for you. Um, and I'm excited as we take another step forward as a church family figuring out how to worship Jesus together, how to be the church, how to love our community during this difficult um, time that we're in. Man, it just seems to be going on and on and on. But I know that God is faithful and he's with us and he'll see us through. So we're excited. We're looking forward to worshiping together next week. You can watch for information about that during the week ahead. All right, well, let me pray. And then we're going to prepare our hearts to dive into the word this morning. And so, Heavenly Father, once again, we worship you, God, we glorify you, and we invite you now to speak to our hearts, creator of the world, lover of mankind. God, you love us so much, you put your image upon us. And so, Lord, would you speak to our hearts about who you are, who you've made us to be, and how we can operate in this broken, fallen world that you love and that you've called us to love. And so, God, would you direct us? Jesus, Savior of the world, Lord of our lives, King of our hearts, would you be our guide? Thank you that you are the living word, and I pray that you would make this word come alive in our hearts so that we could then make the word alive in us and through us to a world in need. And so, Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do. Teach us, guide us, correct us where we need correcting, and ultimately empower us to both understand your truth and to live it out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to use as our launching off point this morning some of our reading from this past week. Um, we read through the book of Ecclesiastes and then the book of Song of Solomon, or it's also called the Song of Songs. And so we'll talk about those in just a minute. But there's a very specific idea 
that I want to talk to you guys about today. And it's about the way that we view the world and our place in it. Um, and I want us to understand a couple of key principles going into this. Number one, yes, we're citizens of the United States of America. We're residents of this country. But friends, we're citizens of the world. Um, I'm not talking about some one world government or anything like that. I just simply mean like we're a part of the human race. And so we are connected to the people of this world. And we are called to love this world. We're called to live in and be a part of this world. But the second principle that's important that we're going to talk about this morning is that we're also called not to be of this world. And so while we are citizens of the world and a part of the human race, friends, our true citizenship is in heaven. We're members of God's kingdom. If we've given our life to Jesus, we belong to him. And that is central and primary. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is how to have um, just a proper view of how we love this world and live within it and remember where our true allegiance lies and how, how the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, is meant to touch our lives and this world through our lives. So that's where we're heading. Um, so I want to start by just kind of introducing this idea this morning. Um, you might be familiar with the movie Field of Dreams. Um, I love that movie. I, I'm a baseball guy, and it's just, it's just a fun, good movie. Um, it's wild to me that the movie actually works. You know, if, you, if you're familiar with the movie, this guy hears this voice coming from his cornfield, and you begin to discover that people who've long passed away are coming back somehow, you know, from the grave, from heaven, whatever, through his cornfield, and they begin to play baseball on this baseball field that he feels called to build. And so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of kind of um, fantasy to this movie, but it, it does speak to some, some places in our heart. And there's this one character really that I want to talk about. I don't want to unpack the whole movie, but there's this one character, and it's the guy played by James Earl Jones. And he's a fictional um, civil rights writer. He's, he's a guy from the civil rights movement um, who now, years later, decades later, he's stopped writing. He's gone into seclusion because he's just beat down and frustrated and discouraged that the world hasn't changed. That despite all he stood for and all he wrote about and the ways he tried to inspire, things hadn't changed. And he had just kind of fallen into this bitterness and this despair. And that's something that the scripture actually talks about a lot. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes in a lot of ways is about that. And so I want to begin by talking about how do I respond to what's wrong in the world? When I look around and feel like, is there any progress? Maybe I think there is progress, but I still see so much need for change. How do I respond to a world in need? And so Ecclesiastes taps into this kind of despair that we can feel. And so right at the beginning, it opens in chapter 1. I'd encourage you not only to read the whole book, but even specifically read chapter 1 as it really unpacks this sense of what's it all for? What, what am I really working towards? Are we accomplishing anything? So to give you a sense of this, I want to read verses 2 and 15 of chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity, um, if you watch the video from the midweek, we talked about it a little bit. Um, it, it means kind of meaningless, empty. 
It means trying to grasp a hold of something that slips through our fingers. It's, it's like that elusiveness of finding purpose and meaning in the world. And the writer is saying vanity of vanities. I want you to think about it like this. You know, if we, if we hear the phrase king of kings, right? We know that Jesus is like the king above all kings. Or the holy of holies. It's like the most holy place. Well, he's saying in all I've learned and all I've explored and experienced in this world, I'm at this place of feeling overwhelmed by the utter meaninglessness of it all. And then he moves down to verse 15 and he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. He says, I feel stuck when I look at the world and what's broken in it. It just doesn't seem to get better. And the things that are broken seem beyond count. Now listen, I don't want to totally misrepresent the book of Ecclesiastes. There are glimpses of hope in the book. But one of the main themes of this book is the writer struggling and giving voice to the struggle of despair. What's it all for? And friends, if despair is allowed to win out, what it leads to, its ultimate conclusion, despair lands at either indifference, where I just have this sense of checking out completely. Just forget it. I'll just live for the moment, live for the day, and tune out on all that's broken and wrong. Or the other place that despair lands is, is rejection. I, I want to just watch it all burn. I'm mad about what I see. I, I'm not just indifferent to it. I want it to die. And in fact, maybe I'll even participate in helping to light the match. That's where despair leads. It leads either to indifference or rejection. Now listen, these two concepts, they're really both just a different side of the same coin. And it's this, this issue of, of hate, reaching a point where I hate something. Either I hate it so much that I'm just indifferent to it, or I hate it so much that I want to watch it burn. That's where despair leads, the sense of meaninglessness. And so the book of Ecclesiastes kind of wrestles with that. And that's a real way that we can feel about this world and its problems. I can just grow indifferent to it because it seems beyond me and overwhelming and it seems beyond repair. Um, or I can be so angry and frustrated by what I see that's broken that I have like no love for it anymore and I just want to watch it burn. And so that's, that's one possible viewpoint. Now what's interesting in contrast to this, in, in the midst of vanity of vanities this week, we also read this love letter, this poetry, this book of poetry that's expressing love between two lovers. And that's the book of the Song of Solomon, or, or really what's called the Song of Songs. So it's like the ultimate declaration of love. Now listen, I don't want you to mishear me. Love is a powerful, beautiful, wonderful thing. In fact, true love, real love, is how God describes himself. And all of his other characteristics that flow out of his nature, they flow from his love. So that's a real thing. But often, our human expression of love is something else. And a lot of what we hear in this Song of Songs is these two lovers that are so captivated with each other that they're sort of blocking else, out all else. It's like they only have eyes for each other. And, they, and there's a lot of... Um, uh, kind of beautiful, expressive language as they're describing each other and their love for each other and what they experience with each other. And it just seems to block out all else. Let me, let me give you a, a taste of this. Um, chapter 8 
in verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. I mean, they're, they're giving love deep, strong language. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it out. Listen, often what we call love, it, it can blind us to seeing a person or, or something else, something that we care about, that we love. It could be an institution. It could be a location. Um, it could be a concept or an idea. But our love can be so sentimental. We can wear such rose-colored glasses that it's not really love that we're feeling for something, but it's, it's blind love. I mean, we've even used the phrase, love is blind. And I would just say, while that phrase is accurate, love can be blind, love is blind, I actually think it's a little bit wrong because true love is not blind. Sentimentality can be blind. Nostalgia can be blind. The emotional feeling of love can be blind, but real love should never be blind. And so these two concepts, they're two different ways that we can view the world as a whole. They're two different ways that we can view what we see when we look at this world. We can see the problems and be honest about them, but have a real sense of despair as we look with honesty. And so we, we gravitate more towards feelings of hate, you know, indifference, rejection. Or we can begin to tell ourselves some lies. We can begin to be blind to the things that are broken and put on rose-colored glasses that, that we use the word love but really, actually, we're walking in sentimentality or nostalgia, and we're not being honest about what we see. Now, G.K. Chesterton, he writes about kind of these two dangers, these two, these two different outlooks upon the world and why they're broken and why they're dangerous. And so he unpacks this a bit in his book called Orthodoxy, um, specifically in his chapter called Flag of the World. And I'm actually stealing the title of that chapter as the title of today's sermon flag of the world. And so he begins to kind of speak to this language of both what he's calling the pessimist, the person that would just kind of watch the world burn. I'm not talking about healthy pessimism. I'm talking about that, that despair, that indifference, that bitterness, um, or the optimist that would look at the world through these rosy glasses. And so first he describes the problem of the pessimist. I want you to catch this. He says, what is bad in a candid friend Someone who would say, hey, I'm just speaking candidly about what I see. What is bad in a candid friend is simply that he is not candid. He is keeping something back, his own gloomy pleasure in saying unpleasant things. He has a secret desire to hurt, not merely to help. The evil of the pessimist is, then, not that he chastises the world, but that he does not love what he chastises. He says, listen, the danger in having a pessimistic view isn't that you're calling out something that's broken. It's that you don't love what's broken. You just want to watch it burn. The opposite of this, he points out the problem with the optimist. And he says, what is the evil of the man commonly called an optimist? Obviously, it is felt that the optimist, wishing to defend the honor 
of this world will defend the indefensible. He will not wash the world, but will whitewash the world. What he's saying there is that the problem of the person who sees things with these sentimental glasses, the way they view the world, they end up okaying what is wrong and broken. They whitewash it over. They pretend like it's not there. They, they try to make it look better than it is. He says, both of these are broken and wrong. So then how do I respond to a broken world? Well, he begins to offer a solution when he says, the real question is this. And friends, I want you to hear this. The real question is this, Chesterton says, can we hate the world enough to change it and yet love it enough to think it worth changing? I want to read that one more time. Can we hate the world enough to change it and yet love it enough to think it worth changing? Guys, this is precisely God's view on the matter. This is what Jesus is talking about when he speaks to Nicodemus of old in John chapter 3, famous, famous verse, verses 16 and 17. Listen to this. For God so loved the world that he left it the way it was, that he just viewed it as perfect and beautiful. No. He so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God saw that the world was broken. So did he just want to watch it burn? No. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Listen, don't get lost in the familiarity of this verse and miss the importance here. Think about what this is describing about God's view of the world. Would God just have the world burn to the ground? Or would he just leave it as it is to its own devices with indifference, just stepping back from it? No to either of those. Would God love it with blind sentimentality? No, not that either. He loved the world enough to change it. He loved the world enough to fix what was broken, listen, at great cost to himself. Guys, that is real love. That is revolutionary love. That is sacrificial love. And that's what is needed. What this world needs is some honesty that looks at the problems around us and says, that's real and that's broken. But then loves and cares enough not only to be honest about what's broken, but to be willing to lean in and do something about it as opposed to growing cold or indifferent or just deciding, I'm just going to take care of me and what's mine. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God is to love sacrificially. That's real love. Sacrificial love that looks with honesty, that sees the thing that it loves and says, yeah, I love that with all my heart, but I recognize something is broken there. And so I care. And so I'm going to act on behalf of this broken world. It's what's needed in this world. And listen, friends, God did something about it. Jesus did something about it. And it provides the ultimate hope for this world. But I've got to tell you, God is inviting us as his followers, as believers, to participate in righting the wrongs. And so he calls us, too, to sacrificial love. 
Now listen, there's a lot of examples of this in Scripture. I'm just going to give you one this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, this is after he's explained that he is about to die for the sake of the world. And he tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, the question is, am I willing to love this world enough to live sacrificially for its behalf? It will cost me something for something new and life-giving to emerge. Something first has to die. Jesus talked about this concept over and over again. He talked about the idea of a grain of wheat has to die and fall into the ground as like a dead thing. It's fallen off of this living plant. It's died and it falls in the ground and it seems over. It seems hopeless. But that little seed gets planted in the earth and it springs to new life. Friends, we have to be willing to look at ourselves honestly and to look at the world that we live in, what's going on around us honestly and say, hey, there might be some things sacrificially that have to change, that have to die. But it's not out of indifference and it's not out of rejection where I just want to watch it burn. It's a sacrificial death. There's things in me that might need to die in order that new life and hope can emerge. The world is broken and it needs sacrificial love to change it. That's the love of God and it's what He's calling us to participate in. Now that should lead us to the next logical question, which is, okay, great, the world needs to change. What is the change that the world needs? What can I actually do about the brokenness that I see? What could possibly happen to bring about real change in this world? Friends, I believe one of our biggest issues as the church is that we have made salvation somehow separate from real practical living. This is what James was writing about when he says, hey, faith without works is dead. He's not saying I've got to earn my faith or prove my faith. He's just saying true faith in Jesus will change things. It will change me. The way I think, the way I speak, the way I live, it'll change me. And it should begin to influence the world around me. This is the principle of the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about. This theme came up over and over and over again. First of all, at the very start of Jesus' ministry, he launched his ministry by talking about the kingdom of God. Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, that means change. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This message of change that Jesus brought was a message of God's kingdom at hand. Listen, I absolutely believe that full, complete redemption will not come until Jesus returns the second time. I believe that. I believe that our real ultimate hope is found in heaven, where we will live free of sin and its consequences for eternity. I believe that with all my heart. But we're misrepresenting the message of Jesus if we leave out His kingdom right here, right now message. It's what he began his ministry with, and then he talked about it over and over again throughout his life and ministry. Listen, he talked about this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. 
the greatest sermon ever preached. He spoke about this when he was teaching his disciples how to pray. Hey, both the way we pray needs to influence this world and the way we live needs to influence this world. And so he, pray, he said, taught them to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. He wasn't telling them to pray for the far distant future kingdom to come. He was teaching them to pray, God, right here, right now in my life today, in my city today, in this moment in history, God, would your kingdom come right here? And so he taught it. He taught them to pray like that. Listen, if you read through the parables of Jesus, which by the way, he said, these are for my followers. The world will not understand these parables, but my followers will understand them. He called them parables about the kingdom. Over and over again, he said, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he told a story to teach us how to live and experience God's kingdom right here, right now. And then at the end of it all, after he's died and risen from the grave, the book of Acts opens by telling us what Jesus talked about for those that month, month and a half, those 40 days when he was on the earth after his resurrection, before he ascended to heaven. There must be a reason he stuck around for 40 days and talked to his followers. Of course, there was a reason. And here it is, Acts 1.3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus' life and ministry begins with talking about the kingdom. He talks about it throughout his life and ministry, and he ends his ministry talking about the kingdom. Listen, friends, Jesus when he brings us into relationship with him, what he's doing is he's bringing us into his kingdom where he's the king and he has the rule and reign in my life. And he now wants me to be a representative of that kingdom in this world. He wants me to bring kingdom principles into this world. And so we see things like this. Colossians 1.13 talks about this beautiful picture of us being set free from the brokenness of this world and the broken systems and rule, rulers of this world and brought into his kingdom. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the, main, the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the transition that's happened. I give you some stuff you can read on your own. He talks about our citizenship now being in heaven. Philippians 3.20, and Ephesians 2.19. The scripture also describes us as being sojourners or exiles here, here on the earth. We are actually a part of a different land, a different kingdom, and we are like exiles or foreigners here on earth now. That concept is talked about in 1 Peter 2.11, and it's talked about um, the saints of old similarly in Hebrews 11.13, that we're sojourners here. And then finally, we're described as ambassadors, representatives with a job to do here on earth. Second Corinthians, I'd encourage you to read all of chapter five because it describes our job as ambassadors. But five verse 20 specifically says, we are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And our job is to be ministers of reconciliation. That means our job on this earth is to roll our sleeves up and not be surprised by brokenness but to expect it, 
to know that this is a broken world in need of repair. And sacrificial love is how God responds to the brokenness of this world. God's kingdom is meant to be set apart. And therefore, we need to stand apart. Friends, I believe that one of the reasons we struggle, the church struggles when crisis comes, is we don't know how to respond or we fail to step up and respond the way that we're supposed to because we're not living in this kingdom reality. I'm not recognizing the truth that God's kingdom is available right here, right now, and that I'm meant to not only live in that kingdom myself, but to bring those kingdom principles to bear upon the problems of this world. I'm meant to be a carrier of that truth. I'm meant to extend the invitation of this kingdom. And I'm meant to live my life in such a way that it represents the kingdom well, so that when people see a picture of Jesus in the church, they're drawn to it. Listen, I just got to be real with you guys for a minute. Because we are citizens of a different kingdom, then that kingdom should not directly, hear me, I'm not saying that kingdom can't speak to or influence these things, but the kingdom of God should not be directly attached to a country, a political party, a specific culture, or an ideology, to a race, or to a creed. Friends, I believe with all my heart that the American church has done a huge disservice to the gospel by aligning Christianity with America as a nation and with a certain political party. We've done a huge disservice to the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. When we, I'm not saying I don't love America. I'm grateful for a country that has provided me with many freedoms. But when we attach Christianity and equate it as equal to being an American citizen, then the things that are broken and wrong within our country get associated with Christianity. When we attach the gospel of Jesus to a specific political party, and then that political party gets it wrong on certain issues or has certain leaders who are broken and leading in broken ways, we misrepresent the gospel of Jesus. And instead of the world that's hurting and broken being drawn to the one who is their hope, they're repelled by it because we've attached it to something unholy that was never meant to be linked with it. Listen, I believe this. When we allow the church to become synonymous with a political party or a cultural ideology, any of them, we are actually misrepresenting the character of God and we're causing great damage in our generation. Friends, this is what the third commandment is all about. In the 10 commandments, the third commandment is, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. That is about so much more than uttering a curse. It's saying we should take seriously what we attach the name of God to. If I take on the name of Jesus and then I assign the word Christianity or the church to something that is not the church, that does not represent God accurately, I am breaking the third commandment. And God hates that because it misrepresents him to the world. Remember what kept Moses from going into the promised land? He misrepresented how God felt towards the people of Israel. When they were complaining at one point and thirsty, 
and Moses was getting desperate and was frustrated with their complaining, God said, speak to the rock and I'll make water come forth. God's heart was to bring refreshment to people in a dry and weary land. Moses was irritated with the people and as the visible leader that they could see, he struck the rock in anger and falsely communicated to the people, God's mad at you. And because Moses misrepresented the heart of God, he didn't enter the promised land. Friends, I believe that many of the things that we, the church, hope to see happen in our homes, in our communities, in our countries, we're being robbed of entering that promised land because we are misrepresenting God as we directly connect or align the kingdom of God with kingdoms of this world, with principles of this world that are broken. Friends, we must divorce the church from systems and ideas that are not God's kingdom. Then, because I'm not saying we shouldn't influence culture or we shouldn't influence government, then when we have made that distinction clear, then we can turn and allow the kingdom of God through us to influence and reform those same systems and to filter and to critique those same ideas. Listen, there are some systems that are good and are functioning well. There are some ideas that would bring about healthy change. There's other things in in the systems of our country and this world that are broken and that don't represent the heart of God. And there are ideas being proposed to change them that are equally broken and destructive. But it is through living with a kingdom mindset that we can see clearly and we can speak kingdom principles and influences to renovate, to reform, to bring change in a broken world. Listen, here's the bottom line. If we're truly kingdom people, then we will offend and critique all political parties and we'll offend cultural ideologies. I mean, I I could list a few. How much time I got here? I could list a few and step on some toes. But the bottom line is if, if we begin to go through a list of some of the big problems that we face in our country, then we're going to have to be willing to grapple with areas where where we have been filled with hypocrisy or we've been filled with compromise. The abortion ethic. I I believe abortion is wrong with all of my heart. And if we're going to fight for and speak to the right of life, we should extend it to all at every point in life. And we should provide healing and solutions to the broken. And so the person who chooses not to get an abortion, what help are we offering and extending to that person in that hard situation that would lead them to even consider it? Or what about the person who's already done it? They've already committed an abortion. They've had an abortion and they're broken and they're hurting and they need the love and the grace of Jesus. They need the church to surround them and bring them near and say, there's hope, there's redemption, there's forgiveness. If we're going to take a stand on an issue, we've got to consider all facets of the issue. Am I going to speak up for the orphan? Am I willing to give money or maybe even open my home for a life that needs it, for a child that needs a place? The racial ethic. Listen, until we fully embrace and understand that all are equal, 
that we are different. We don't have to deny that we're different. We're different and we're special. Friends, we should be able to have a culture that celebrates and honors and protects all. All of the solutions being offered to correct racial injustice may not be right. In fact, many of them are not right. But until we have a proper perspective and a culture of honor, only then can we filter ideas through a kingdom lens in order to elevate and honor all. What about um, the sexual ethic? I mean, I'll step on some toes here while we're diving into it this morning. The sexual ethic. Listen, we should speak to and call out all sexual brokenness that the scripture speaks of. Church, we don't need to compromise on the issue of homosexuality. But please hear me, church. If we aren't willing to deal with our own hypocrisy, broken heterosexual relationships outside of marriage, premarital sex, adultery, pornography, if we aren't willing to be honest about those within the church and call them out and hold ourselves to a higher standard, then how can we speak to the brokenness we see in the culture? We need to be able to say sexual things affect us on more than a physical level. They affect us emotionally. They affect us spiritually. We're spiritual beings. And we were meant to experience sex in a healthy way that is beautiful and redeeming and reflective of God and His love. Listen, if we want to hold on and fight for the sanctity of marriage, then we need to deal with a pandemic of divorce within the church. Friends, the truth is, whatever list we give, I mean, there's so many other things we can talk about. And I don't want to pretend like in these couple of sentences I've said enough on those issues. My point is simply this. When we live with a kingdom mentality, Jesus kingdom mentality, when I recognize that my true home is in heaven and my true allegiance is to the kingdom of God, and if I operate in the belief that it's God's sacrificial love that offers the only chance for real reform and real change in this broken world, if I choose to live that way, that is going to change how I interact with the world around me. And I'll, I will find myself too liberal for my conservative friends. And I will find myself too conservative for my liberal friends because I'm going to be living based on kingdom principles instead of aligning with a party first. Listen, even if there is a party I associate with more than others, the first thing I should do is speak correctively and, and critique that party based on kingdom principles. Let me connect where I've attached myself first before I critique other sides. Friends, that's what we're called to. Here's the bottom line. In the church, people are walking away because of injustice. Some of it's real injustice, some of it's perceived injustice because they have broken thinking. Or people are staying in the church, but they're trying to change our theology. Listen, friends, our job is not to fight for theology at the expense of the hurting and the oppressed, but it also isn't to compromise our theology in the name of love when it's really just sentimentality. The truth is we need to live out our theology in a real way 
to deal with what's broken within the church, both our hypocrisy and our compromise, and then we can also deal with what's broken in this fallen world. That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Friends, I, I feel like we're, we're covering a lot of ground this morning. I'm diving into some big things, and, and we can end up landing where we started, you know, where I, I look at the world and my place in it, and I can feel overwhelmed. I can feel like the writer of Ecclesiastes saying, man, what's it all for? I mean, even if I have this right view of what the world needs, even if I begin to align my life with Jesus, how can I possibly see real change? What can I really do? I want to give you some some parting words to consider about how we can participate in real change in our world today. All right, the bottom line is it's about kingdom living now. Jesus' plan to change the world was to bring people into his kingdom through the method of discipleship. This is another familiar verse, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and he said to his, his followers, he said, all authority... All power, my kingdom is the one with the real power. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Everyone's invited into the kingdom. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all. That really could be better translated to obey all. To to understand it all and then to live it. All that I have commanded you. That's kingdom living. Everything he talked about, observe it, take it in, understand it, and then live by it. And behold, I'm with you always till the end of the age. Jesus' method was not to come with an authoritarian rule. He made himself the servant of all. And his plan to change the world was to do it one person at a time. And so he's called you and I to come into his kingdom and then be carriers of it to other people. So what can I do? It's simple, guys. I can bring these things under kingdom influence, these areas where I have authority and influence, my life and my family. Um, As Dr. Tony Evans said recently, I was watching some incredible stuff he had to say about how we can respond during this day. But he said specifically, here's my starting point. I can start by doing this. I must dethrone illegitimate perspectives in my heart. The first thing I can do is I can bring my heart to the Lord and say, Lord, where have I been defensive? Where have I been defending my own turf instead of allowing you to be king in my heart? God, are there things in me that need to change? And will I dethrone those illegitimate perspectives? Will I allow Christ to sit on the throne of my heart? and let him be the voice of influence in my life and my family. And then it trickles outward. My church. That, that can mean our church, Grace Chapel, but even beyond that, the church in our community here in Knoxville. What can our church in this community do to more effectively represent Jesus in this world? Well, the church is relationships and people. So we need to have good, healthy biblically-based conversations with one another, another, to sharpen each other, to sharpen each other in our personal lives and to sharpen how the church operates in the world. And then this can trickle out into our community. I can speak kingdom life and truth with love into my community. 
and I should use both word and deed. I need to speak gospel truth, and I need to live gospel truth. And then beyond that, we can do what Jesus taught us, right? It starts local, starts in my life, right here, right now, and then it spreads out, and eventually it goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so then I can begin to ask questions. While, while no, I can't influence every person on this globe. Maybe my area of influence is small. But I can ask the question, when and where do I have access and influence? When and where? And then prayerfully, through God's leading and hand on my life, I should speak up, I should act justly, I should vote where I can vote, I can, I can bring kingdom living to bear in areas where I have influence. Friends, here, here's, here's the bottom line in conclusion this morning. We should not be surprised that the world needs renovation. The work is not going to end this side of heaven. That might feel discouraging. Oh man, there's always going to be problems. Oh man, it's not going to end this side of heaven. But listen, just because that's true, doesn't mean that the work isn't vital. It is. And don't let it make you think that things are hopeless. They're not. Because there is a heaven that we're looking forward to, and that heaven offers healing through the present kingdom of Jesus and the future glory that's promised of a redeemed world by our eternal King. Because that is true, I need to come back to the question that Chesterton put. And this is where I want to leave you this morning. Will I hate the world enough to change it, and yet will I love it enough to think it worth changing? By the power and presence of Jesus in my life, I can be an agent of change by experiencing the sacrificial love of Christ in my heart and by being an ambassador, a foreigner, that's not of this world, but yet a person living in this world with love and purpose to see a broken world that's hurting, to see it change, to see it experience hope, to see it experiencing the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, one person at a time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're going into deep waters this morning. Um, Lord, we're stepping on toes this morning. But Jesus, I thank you that you were never afraid to step on toes. You spoke to the full gamut of humanity. You spoke to the rich and the poor. You spoke to the slave and the free. You spoke to religious leaders and to sinners. And you invited them all to change. You called out hypocrisy. You called out compromise. You identified broken systems. And your life, your message, your love resonated with broken people because you offered real hope and real change. God, I thank you that you look on this world not with rose-colored glasses. You see the brokenness of this fallen world. And yet, God, you love us. You love people. And you lean in to do something about it. Jesus, thank you for your ultimate plan of redemption, for your love that redeems. And now, God, as believers, Lord, I pray that more and more we would participate in your kingdom right here, right now. God, would you show us ways where we have resisted your rule and your reign in our own hearts?
or ways where we've hung back out of anger or indifference and haven't stepped up and participated in bringing kingdom truth to a world in need. Kingdom love, sacrificial love to a world in need. God, we need you. We love you. And we thank you that your message then to the disciples that behold, you are always with us to the end of the age. Jesus, I thank you that that promise is still true. You are with us. You are for us. You are in us, enabling us to live a kingdom life and offer real hope and real change to a world in need. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. I love you, my friends, and I'm really looking forward to being with you guys next Sunday in person, 10 a.m. at North Shore Elementary School. Can't wait to see you then. Have a great week.